Okay, let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity and the privilege of worshipping you this morning. Lord, we pray as we just look at um, our next topic in our series that, Lord, you would just speak to each one of us, open our hearts, uh, and, Lord, just be with us. And as we respond to you later, that, Lord, you would just be with us by the power of your spirit. We ask you to move, Lord, in these next few minutes, Lord, not just in our intellect and our learning, but, Lord, in our hearts and our lives as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'll tell you a story just as we start. Um, I see no one nailed a bit of wood on for me like I asked last week. That's okay. Um, I'll tell you a story. A story of three men. Three men who loved God, perhaps not dissimilar to some of us here this morning. Three men who were happy in their lives, going about their daily business, and who one day were dragged away from everything they knew. Three men who were dragged away from their family, their friends, their home, their land, and dragged off to another country to serve a megalomaniac king who thought he was nothing short of God. They were abducted from their homes one day, they were taken from their loved ones, and they were dragged off to a foreign land and an evil king. When these three men got to this other land, it actually didn't go too bad for them. Um, Normally, with that sort of story, you think it would be bad from day one, but actually, this guy wanted to assimilate people into his kingdom, to have more people to serve him. And actually, it was all going okay, until this megalomaniac king who thought he was God decided to build a statue, a gold statue in the middle of town. And he built this statue and he made one command, an edict for everybody. But when the command was given, the music began to play, everybody, no matter who you were or where you were from, would bow down and worship the statue. Because if you didn't, you'd be killed. Quite straightforward uh, law. Well, these three men had a real conflict of interest because they loved and worshipped the only true and living God. And they made a a a resolution in their hearts that when this statue was made, when the music was played, when everybody else bowed down, they decided that they would not bow down and worship this statue. Well, the music played one day. Everybody bowed down. But these three men refused to. And just like any other society ruled by a dictator, somebody told I always say to my children, you shouldn't tell tales. And uh, and this is a good example of why you shouldn't. They told. These three men were dragged in front of the king, and the king gave them a very clear choice. You either bow down and worship the statue and live, or you don't, and I'll kill you. And if I kill you and throw you in the furnace, what God will save you? I wonder how you'd have reacted to that um, decision. Bow down and live. Don't bow down and be thrown into a furnace. Would you have bowed down? Would you have begged for mercy and said, no, no, we're only joking, we got it wrong, sorry. We'll bow down now, it's okay. Would you have hidden your faith somewhere and said to God, well, I don't mean it, I just don't want to die. I wonder what you'd have done, what I would do. Well, this is what these three men said. They said to this megalomaniac of a king, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. That story is, of course, from Daniel chapter 3 and of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
And uh, these three men were thrown into a fiery furnace. King Nebuchadnezzar got so angry, he made it seven times hotter and threw them in. God died throwing them into the fire. And as they were thrown into that fire, something truly amazing happened. God himself was with them and walked around in the midst of that furnace. They didn't burn, they didn't smolder, they didn't even get hot or anything happened to them. They were taken out. And Nebuchadnezzar made a command that everybody in his kingdom should worship the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But it's not the miraculous way God saved them from the fiery furnace that really struck me this week. What really hit me as I read that story in my quiet time this week was the assurance they had in God before they were thrown into the fire. They probably assumed they were going to die. They said, of course God can save us. But if he doesn't, we're still not going to do it. It's the certainty of their faith even in the face of certain death, that really caught my attention this week. And I hear so many Christians, I'm not pointing fingers, but across the 25 years I've been a Christian, a follower of Christ, I've known so many Christians who don't have certainty about what they believe. They doubt their God, they doubt their salvation, they doubt, more importantly, God's grace in their life. They say phrases like, I hope. I'll be in heaven when I die. I hope God will forgive me this time because I did it again and I'm sure God's probably fed up with me now. Or they say things like, I'm unsure that God really loves me. Wouldn't it be good to have a faith like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego? Wouldn't it be good to have a faith that's so certain of God that even when dire circumstances, you know God is good? That even in the storm of doubt that consumes you, you can say God is real. And even in the midst of personal failing, you can know God still loves you despite your sin. Wouldn't it be good to have full assurance of the faith that you have? Wouldn't it be good? Good. It's just me. (laughs) Well, praise the Lord. Fantastic. To borrow a Martin McNally quote, happy days. Because that's exactly the kind of faith God wants every single one of us to have. Every single day, of every single week, of every single month, of every single year. Until the day you die and then you go and meet him face to face in his kingdom. God wants every single one of us to be sure about everything he's promised. We're doing a current series leading up to Easter And we're making an acrostic, or an acronym even, of the word Easter. Um, I don't think it's going to be on the screen this week, I'm not sure. Apparently it appeared behind me last week. I've not actually spoken to David. No, there we are. See, he's not that good, Marvin, wherever you are. (laughs) Not everything appears. Um, Yeah, no, I told Gavin, to be fair. (laughs) Um, I was only joking. Um, But we're asking that question, why did Jesus die? Because so often we we go through the motions, we know the words, we lift our hands up or clap or, or not. And we reflect, but we don't always know why he died. Why does it matter that Jesus died on the cross? And last week, uh, E of our acronym of Easter stood for everlasting life. Jesus died to give us everlasting life. And this week's letter is A. Uh, A is for assurance. Jesus' death was to give us assurance. Assurance of God's love, assurance of our salvation, of our forgiveness, and of that everlasting life that we talked about last week. And if you're wondering why we're doing them in in this order, it's because you try and make an acronym of the word Easter that follows a logical order. Um, But you're going to put them all together and it's all going to make perfect sense at the end. 
But coming back to that cross of Christ, Jesus' death and his resurrection is the central part of what we believe as Christians. It is the central part of human history. All the turning points of human history fade into insignificance until that very first Easter 2,000 years ago. That is the turning point of human civilization when Jesus Christ died and rose again. Because that event changed us, saves us when we ask Jesus into our lives. In 1 John chapter 1 verse 19 we read this promise. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What an amazing promise to have. He'll purify us and forgive us if we confess our sin. Hebrews 9:22 says the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. It's the Old Testament law. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And the cross is important. It matters. And we understand as Christians that because Jesus died, he died because of our sin. It was because of our actions that he was nailed to a cross. The Son of God was nailed to a cross, and it was my fault. It was your fault. It was our faults that nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. He went because of our sin. You don't get to God because you try hard to be good and he accepts your goodness. No one's ever done that in human history. They never have done and they never will do. You get to heaven when you die because Christ was nailed to a cross because of your faults. And you accept the forgiveness that only his death can bring. It was God's grace as well. He died so there could be forgiveness for each one that wants it from the very God who we've offended by our sin. You see, God loves us so much that even though our sin broke his law and breaks his laws, even though our sin offends him personally, even though the penalty for our sin is death, he sends his son, his only son, to be nailed to a cross to bear the cost and the punishment. He atones for our sin. Jesus steps into our place, sent by the very God that we have wronged in the first place. So that very God can offer us forgiveness. That's amazing, isn't it? Is there ever a message like that in all of human history, in any philosophy or religion? No, nowhere. Would a God that you've offended provide the solution for your forgiveness? Yet that's what we have at the cross of Christ at Easter. That's why Jesus died. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Why do we sin as human beings? It's not just because we make bad choices. We spoke last week of original sin, born with a problem. The Bible describes every human being as having a sinful nature, a nature that is often at odds with what God wants. Yet the same God who is amazing and loving and merciful, the very God that we by nature rejected before we knew Jesus, allows us to be transformed on our innermost being. He changes our sinful nature to a spiritual nature, a new nature. If you came to the, uh, the breakfast a few weeks ago, I forget what it was exactly, two, weeks, two Saturdays ago, I think, that Andy organized. We had a guy called Simon Pinchbeck, uh, unusual surname, but you wouldn't take the mickey if you saw him because he's about 12 foot tall and so wide. And he's, I tell you, he's, actually his hands were bigger than my head. And that's not an exaggeration. I've got quite a regular... Well, we won't go down that route. <laughs> Discussing whether my head's a regular size or not. But Simon Pinchbeck 
before he knew Jesus Christ was horrible. He was a criminal. He was a thug. He was an adulterer. He did all the things that you would associate with the very worst of people. And I'm happy to say that because that's how he described himself that Saturday morning during our breakfast in that hall next, next door. Yet when he accepted Christ into his life, he changed, not because he was bored of doing wrong, but because the God's Holy Spirit renewed him, changed his sinful nature, and gave him a new one. The old are gone, the new has come. And some of you this morning are still trying to change your ways in your own strength. When you cannot, you can get slightly better. You can make good choices, but real transformation comes only when you ask Jesus Christ into your life and you allow the Holy Spirit to begin to refine you and sanctify you and change you and cleanse you. You cannot do it in your own strength because only Jesus died to transform you. And at the cross, we see just what God thinks of us, that he loves us. He loves us to death. And what's so sad is that so many Christians who should be living in the liberating light of those three things, forgiveness, transformation, the love of God, what's sad is that so many Christians should be liberated by those three things I've just said, aren't. What's sad is that so many Christians are stuck. They're stuck doubting that God likes them, loves them. They're unsure whether they can ever be truly forgiven. That thing I did 20 years ago, it keeps coming into my mind. Therefore, God surely hasn't let it go. Of course he has, but we'll come on to that. And they don't really feel they've changed on the inside. I wonder, where are you this morning on all of those three things? Are you one of those people? Do you doubt that God even likes you? Do you doubt that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Do you doubt that God is changing you slowly, chipping away at all the stuff you used to do? Well, A stands for assurance, because Jesus didn't just die to get us a place in heaven. Um, He died so we could be certain of our salvation in this life, not just the next. Because the likes of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, are not in the Bible so that we can look at them and go, whoa, I can never get up to their level. They're not up there as legendary believers who we can't ever hope to be like they're reminders that these are the ones God calls us all to be God calls us all to be like those three men who in the face of a furnace can have solid faith God wants us to be so sure of our salvation and our forgiveness so sure that even if everything screams the opposite we've got the faith to scream the truth I'm loved and I'm forgiven and I am changed I'll tell you about 12-year-old Gary Hansen, shall I? Someone's going to take the mickey out of myself. I'm, uh, I'm quite, you know, passionate, as you know. And um, when I was 11 years old, I became a Christian. I didn't always understand everything at the beginning. I grew to understand what I believed. And, uh, and I believed it. And as far as I was concerned, I believed it. That's it, 100%. And I tried to trust it in all the ways I could. And I remember dealing with doubt as a 12-year-old boy. And I remember standing in my mum's uh, morning room. Not sure what we call it now. What do we call it now? It's not a morning room anymore, is it? It's very posh. Um, who knew? Um, but whatever you call the morning room, dining room, that'll do. And I remember standing there um, on my own sometimes, and the devil whispering in my ear, "God doesn't love you anymore. You're not going to heaven. You know you've done it. You sinned again. Told you you would, and you enjoyed it, and you did it, and you didn't care. So God's fed up with you now, and that's it. You're out." 
And you know what I would do? I'd put my hands up like that. Don't think I'm weird. And I would say, how dare you tell me that God doesn't love me? How dare you tell me I'm not going to heaven when I die because Jesus died on the cross for me? And I'm told that if I believe in that, I am forgiven and I'm loved and I'm safe for eternity. And I said that out loud to the devil, pointing and everything. And do you know what? That always sorted me out. Thank you. (laughs) And there are three things I want to say to you this morning. Three reasons why you should be dead certain about your forgiveness in Jesus Christ, your love from God the Father and your everlasting life three things. Number one, because at the cross, that's where we're going back to, at the cross, we understood and saw that God doesn't lie. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 to 20, talks about Abraham and God's promise to Abraham in the Old Testament. So when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf and has become a great high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And that um, passage, it's a bit hard, we'd like to explain it all, but just what it's doing there is linking the nature of God in that he doesn't lie with the death and resurrection of Jesus at the cross. You see in the Old Testament, God made promise after promise after promise that a Messiah was coming, that he would die, that he would go into the grave but wouldn't see decay, that he would rise again. He promised all those things over and over and over. He promised that this Messiah would bless the whole world. Hundreds of promises, literally hundreds, were made in the Old Testament about this Messiah and were made by God. And as Jesus rose from the grave, we saw that God kept every single one. Our assurance is based on the cross and that we see on that day of the resurrection of Jesus the unchanging nature of God, that he does not lie. Romans 8.28 says God works for the good of those who love him. Matthew 6, we're told, do not worry about tomorrow, what you'll wear, what you'll eat, what you'll drink. Seek first the kingdom of God. Psalm 103, verse 12, says as far as east is from west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Easter means assurance because we saw God the Father's greatest promises fulfilled. And since he doesn't change, The unlying God, as he's called in Titus chapter 1 verse 2, will always do what he's promised. Therefore, if you have a Bible and God makes you a promise in that Bible, he will never break it. Our assurance is based on the fact that God doesn't tell lies. 
Our assurance, number two, is based at the cross because at the cross we saw Jesus was proved to be the Son of God. Hebrews chapter 1 says in the past God spoke through the prophets, but now in these days he speaks through his Son, Jesus. Romans chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, we talk about the Son regarding his Son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the Spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 all the way to 9, we read these amazing words. Then just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, there's so much of that around, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than that of Christ. For in Christ, the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form or lives in bodily form. You see, when Christ rose from the grave, he was proved to be the son of the living God. You see, our saviour isn't in the grave somewhere. If you tell me where the grave of Jesus Christ is, you're a liar. Because they've been searching for 2,000 years for the grave of Jesus of Nazareth. They've been desperately searching. They find a name on a wall and they say, here it is, and it never is. Because he has no grave. Because he beat the grave, defeated death, ascended to heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Where is Jesus? He isn't in the ground. He right now is at the right hand of the living God. Right now as we worship him and listen and talk and pray, he is looking at what we do. He is watching his people. What an amazing thought that is. It should also um, not frighten you, but it should give you a sense of awe as well because Jesus wants to see whether you're taking him seriously or not. But he also wants you to be sure that he is alive. Somebody once asked someone I know why they should trust Jesus and not someone else from another religion or another philosophy. They said, what's the difference between Jesus and all these other men and women that claim to know the truth about God? Why should I put my trust in Jesus as Lord and Saviour and not some other person through history? And the answer to that question was inspired. All the others are dead. Jesus is alive. Our assurance comes from the fact that Jesus is not dead. He is Alive. When you get home, read 1 Corinthians 15 and see why that matters more than anything else. Our confidence isn't in our ability to be religious or holy, but in the fact that we have a risen Savior, living, seated at the right hand of the Father. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus rise from the grave? It's not rhetorical. <laughs> ask again. Did Jesus rise from the grave? Yes. Do you believe that he rose from the grave? Do you believe that he's alive? Well, then that's your assurance. That right there is where our faith is stuck to. That right there is where we pin our feelings of assurance. You don't feel sure of your faith because you feel on an emotional or spiritual high. That's a falsehood sometimes. Our assurance doesn't come from our attempts to be good or that we've had a good spiritual week. You know what it's like? You've read your Bible every day. You've been to a small group meeting and prayer meeting. And you feel a bit good. You feel a bit spiritual that week. And so you think, oh, I feel good. I feel like I'm close to God. Therefore, oh, I'm really sure of my faith. 
Then the next week, you don't read your Bible at all. You shout at the kids and you say something you shouldn't say or watch something you shouldn't watch. Lose your temper. Oh, I don't feel very sure of my faith this week because, you know, I feel far from God. That's not how it works. You should be sure of your faith because Jesus is alive, not because you're good enough. And our final reason is because Jesus, when he died on the cross, was perfect. He was the all-sufficient saviour. We read in Hebrews 10, 10. It says, we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And so why does this matter this morning? Three things. Number one, it matters because our faith in Jesus Christ isn't meant to be a passive hope, something that's just in the background that makes us feel okay sometimes. It's meant to be something active. No one ever changed the world when they hedged their bets. If you're not sure of your faith, then you limit how God can use you. But if you know in your heart Jesus is alive and that's where you place your assurance, then I believe God will use you. The second reason is that doubt robs us of a firm foundation. Faith can never grow when it resembles a leaf blowing in the wind. If you've ever tried to uh, um, do Lego or play Jenga on a train, not that anyone does that sort of thing, that's a bit strange, or do a, a car tower on a train, or on a, uh, let me start again. If you've ever tried to build one of those card pyramid things on a wobbly table, that's far better, isn't it? That's far better. Scrap the whole train thing, that's weird. Um, if you ever tried to do that and you get to the second row and then someone knocks the table and it all falls down, if your faith is fragile and shaky like a leaf blowing in the wind, then it's never going to grow. You rob yourself of a firm foundation. The third reason why this matters is because uncertainty is a burden, a burden that God doesn't want any one of his people to suffer from. So I want to tell you a story to finish with. You know the story already, but I'm going to tell it to you. Because we started with three men that were good, and we're going to end with a man who was bad. But both had the same at the end, assurance of faith in God. This is a story of a man who was a criminal. A man who, when he was young, got on the wrong side of the law. A man who made bad decisions, and then he made worse decisions. And as he made worse decisions and committed crime, he got noticed by the Roman authorities. And the Romans, being not a very nice bunch and liking to make examples of people, they grabbed this guy one day and they arrested him. And then they thought, let's make an example of him like so many others so no one else will commit the crimes he's committed. And so they took him, they beat him, they dragged him to a place known as the skull. They declared him guilty. They nailed him to a cross and they lifted him up, half naked, humiliated, left to die. Imagine how that man felt, nailed to that cross, scared, humiliated, but most of all, guilty. He felt the lowest he ever had. He knew there was no happy ending this time. There was no getting away with it. The end of his life would be the end of a life lived badly. There was no hope. And if there was a God, he certainly wouldn't be interested in him. And so he hung there. But as he hung there in the gap next to him, Amongst a great commotion and shouting and all sorts of noises, another man was lifted up. A travelling preacher that he'd heard of, Jesus of Nazareth, the miracle worker, the one people called the Son of God. And as Jesus was hung on the cross next to him, he would have seen the sign above his head that said, King of the Jews. And as he heard the man on the other side begin to mock Jesus, saying, oh, Come on, then prove it. This man believed. 
He believed that Jesus was the Son of God. He believed that he was pure and holy. And he believed that if he put his trust in Jesus, he could be forgiven. In his almost dying breath, he cried out, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And as his life ebbed away, he received assurance and certainty of salvation. When the son of the living God replied, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Some of you here this morning will be living with a burden of doubt. You've been trying to build your faith on the leaf that blows around. You've been thinking, I've been a Christian for 20 years and I haven't moved forward because I can't feel sure about any of it. It's not too late to just say, Jesus, make it today. And he will say, today you'll be with me. He wants to build your faith like the guy who built his house on a rock. He doesn't want his people to build their life on sand. Those days are gone. But to trust in him, to trust in his death and his resurrection and to have faith that you are sure or dead sure that even if people rob you of everything, including your freedom, you will still trust in him. God doesn't lie. Jesus rose from the grave. He dealt with your sin fully. And if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, then you can face eternity with certainty. Can I ask you to stand? I'd like to ask some questions. And you don't have to answer out loud. In fact, don't answer out loud. But just answer honestly in your heart. And then we'll sing our final song. Do you ever question God's love for you? Do you ever doubt your faith? Do you ever wonder if you've been forgiven and are being made holy? Do you ever think God likes you? Think about where you are this morning. Maybe you're blowing around. Maybe you're the guy building a house on the sand. Just think, where are you this morning? Do you have that assurance of faith in God? And with those in mind, let me ask you some other questions. You can answer out loud if you want. Do you believe in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Do you believe this morning that Jesus is God's only Son? Do you believe that he was perfect? Do you believe that he died for you? Do you believe that he died so that you could be forgiven? And do you believe that he rose again? Well, let me tell you, if you answered yes to those questions, here are some verses that you can trust and to take away this morning as you leave this place. God says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Jesus says in Matthew 28, I am with you always to the very end of the age. John 10, verse 27 to 28. Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they know me. I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. And no one can take them 
out of my hand. And finally, Romans 10, 9 to 13. This is for today. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray before we sing. Father God, as we stand here, Father God, I ask for a blessing on each one of us, myself included. But Lord, when those whispering doubts, just like in Genesis, just like when Jesus was in those 40 days in the desert, when the devil comes and says, surely not. Surely you're not on the Lamb's book of life. Surely God hasn't forgiven you this time. Lord, when those questions come in, is it all true? Am I believing a lie? Lord, may we go back to the cross of Christ. May we go back, Lord, to that moment, that first Easter, that historical moment when the Son of God died. But Lord, when he rose again, Lord, he rose again. He rose, Lord, ascended to heaven. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Whoever confesses and believes is saved. Every promise is yes in Christ. And we are in Christ if we follow him by faith. Lord, I pray this morning that every single one of us will stop building our faith on sand. But start trusting the promises and the nature and the unlying character of God. Unlying, you don't tell one single lie. We can trust you for everything. May we face Monday with certainty. May we face uncertainty with faith. And may we look at you, Lord, without shame or guilt, because we have been washed clean. In Jesus' name, amen.